question. Yes. Do you have a simple diagram that can help me understand how to properly podcast? I do. I'm going to borrow it from noted 20th century theologian, Lonergan. What's his first name? Bernard. Bernard Lonergan S.J. So. (laughs) (laughs) Who is a Canadian, by the way? Oh, is he a Canadian? Yeah, he's a Canadian Canadian. and a Jesuit. I have to be careful about throwing shades (laughs) at uh, Jesuits because I've been doing a lot lately. From the one, there's 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 lots of good, there's a lot of good Jesuits out there. There are good Jesuits about out there. (laughs) Um, So this is very Twitter centric story. Yes, but we're kind of a Twitter centric uh, podcast. Yeah. So, um, how do we make a long story short? Let's make a long story regular. Once yeah. upon a time, a Twitter argument happened. And this Twitter argument was obviously being had by people who had not listened to our excellent podcast on vocations. Episode four, for those who want to go back and listen. And it's brilliant. And it explains everything about vocations. It makes discernment easy. You're welcome. Go listen to it. Yeah. So people were discussing whether or not uh, marriage is a vocation, single life is a vocation. This blah, happens blah, 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 every blah. three or four months on Twitter. Yeah. Every three or four months, this it comes back. I'm like... It's the same thing with babies crying in church. These yes. are your two rotating topics on Twitter. They always come back because there's <laughs> a lot of young families and a lot of uh, young people on Twitter, I think. Because Catholic Twitters are pagans. Ooh, sorry, this has happened that, before. Sorry, sorry what Ca- time out? Catholic Twitter people are pagans. All Ca- this has happened before. All this has happened. All this will happen again. <laughs> that is paganism, people. You are being pagans. <laughs> the circular notion of time has taken exactly. hold instead of our <laughs> linear, linear storytelling time. Okay. So basically... Uh, the great Matt Fish, who we got to have on the podcast sometime, tried to explain some vocational theology. And he ended this nice little Twitter thread with this diagram. And we'll post the diagram when we post this episode. But it's... We, we posted it. We posted it, actually. We actually posted it a million billion times. So is this... But no, our Twitter account posted it yesterday. Oh, did it? Okay, excellent, yes. excellent. Okay. So check our Twitter account and see this diagram. It's basically trying to explain. What is it trying to explain, actually? I barely paid Uh, attention. How marriage is is both a natural and a supernatural vocation. Exactly. Okay. But if you just look at the diagram, it makes no sense. So we were making fun of Father Matt Fish on the Priest DM about this. And Father Matt Fish has a great sense of humor. He's like, hey, we should just make this a meme. So we (laughs) as priests on Twitter side, yes, we will now make this a thing. And within the course of a couple of hours, there were these diagrams and memes popping up all over Catholic Twitter, um, culminating, I think, with a creation by producer Nick, where he's got uh, this Zelda uh, video of Link opening up a box and receiving the Lonergan meme. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. It's amazing. It, uh, it made a ca- at Catholic Kung Fu cry tears of joy that it was Zelda and Lonergan, two of her favorite things in one meme. So there's a lot of different groups on Catholic Twitter. And there's arguments sometimes about which are the most powerful groups. Is it the Catholic dads? Is it the Catholic moms? Is it the Catholic people in college? No, 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 no. The most powerful is obviously the priests. We have initiated one successful relationship so far. Yeah. Several memes. Uh huh. People are this asking. This podcast us, is the fruit of our DM. Right. The podcast itself is a fruit of this DM. People yeah. are coming to us with their questions. They are coming to us asking for, you know, do you know any good Catholic people we could date? Well, we are loving fathers and we, we know 
who is a good person for you to date and who is not. So we're yep. doing all of that. All of this, yeah. I think, makes us undeniably the most powerful subgroup in Catholic <laughs> Twitter. Plus, we can forgive sins. Exactly. But not over Twitter. No. No, of course not. Or over Xbox Live. I've been asked that many times, and I'm not yeah. going to do it. I'm still not going to do no. it. No, no, same. Yeah, I've been asked, can you do it over FaceTime? Nope, sorry. Nope. Has to be in person. Gotta be in person. Has to be in person. But what's... Uh, uh, yeah, it was... It was For me, I think it got to its peak moment yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh, we're recording this the day after all this happened. Yeah. When Friar Nick suggested that we all change our profile pictures to the meme. Yes. <laughs> and it confused everyone. And I posted a picture, like a secret insight into the free DM, just showing... Right. <laughs> everyone posted... All I showed was was the uh, avatar and it was it was hilarious so no there's so much like there's so many like arguments some are fruitful some are good and fruitful arguments and like sometimes sometimes people like oh catholics should never argue on twitter yes we should in a respectful loving way because that's how you work out ideas i think it's a good thing but a lot of times they're just straight up dumb arguments or uncharitable arguments or they're just like terrible news on twitter but you know what your priests are here to give you a good old-fashioned Twitter laugh, and that's what we did, and that was part of this. I laughed so hard yesterday at some points. I know. <laughs> I was, I was like, yeah. It was kind of absurd, for sure. And you know, it ran its course, right? It, it, it had did. I think it, it did. <laughs> we had our fun with it for 24 hours. We're back to our normal profile pics. It was, it was, but our, you know, who, we, he figured it out, thankfully. We gave, you know, we've had problems um, getting Tommy on the show. Yeah. Right, so our podcast account gave him the meme to show him how to get on the podcast. Exactly, he just follows so, that diagram. Folks, he followed the. I'm pretty sure he followed the diagram, so we should have him on at the end of the show. Oh, excellent! Great news. <laughs> how are you doing? Oh, wait. Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison, and I am Father Anthony Sharapa. Yeah. So, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So, Twitter is a weird place. If it wasn't no. for Twitter, we wouldn't even have our. A little podcast, but something else happened not so recently. It's been a few weeks now um, where I have hired of the crunch fame, Patrick Neve, right at Catholic Pat. And he is our new youth minister for our area. So I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast yet, but uh, he definitely is. And he's, you know, uh, he's been scheming and doing all kinds of getting ready for this uh, new uh, youth ministry. Yeah. But it's just crazy because. The reason why I even suggested him for the job in the first place, and of course he interviewed with the other priests and other deacons and blah, 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 all that good stuff. It's fascinating because I've gotten to know his ideas about youth ministry and not just even his ideas about youth ministry, kind of like who he is as a person and his understanding of the spiritual life, like Mm -hmm. all via more or less his podcast. Right. But it's really good to know that like I can, I absolutely like trust him because of the things he's talked about on the podcast and yeah. how he's explained youth ministry and just like the appropriate honesty with which he has shared his struggles. So I'm mm-hmm. like real excited to have him on our team and to do cool. youth ministry stuff. Does it feel weird to have him, have him so close now? Like he's not distant in a way through right. Twitter. It is weird. And this is a weird thing about like, cause he has an office with, you right. Guys, he right? has an office sort of, he shares an office right now. We're, we're, we're mm-hmm. short on office space. Um, because like we both want to be friends Right. And we're definitely friendly, but it's also like most of our contact has been through shout outs via podcast, which is not the best way to <laughs> get to know a person, you know? Um, so you're kind of like working on that and be like, oh, okay, this is a human person in front of me. But also like I'm his supervisor and his boss as well. 
So there's all kinds yeah. of like, you know, relationship and figuring out that. But it's good. It's good because I trust him with this. And uh, it'll be fun to get back into youth ministry myself because mm-hmm. I'll be involved in this. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. So it's just um, cool. the good, th- the best, when Catholic Twitter is at its best, it actually makes real life community and real life things happen. And yeah. this is one of those cases. So cool. Yeah. Well, you, I'm, I'm sure we all know, we, you know, we know him for his writings. But did you know that St. Thomas Aquinas was an expert youth minister too? I did not know that. <laughs> Don't look it up. Just trust me. It's the Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. I actually love this idea. We should just make outrageous claims about things that Thomas Aquinas was proficient in and use those for segues. I like this. This is this this could be fun. Few people so, know, but he was actually an excellent youth minister. Few people know this, but he was an excellent sacristan as well. Like I said, don't look it up. Just trust me. Just trust it. That's clericalism. Yes. So uh speaking of your earlier comment. At Ryan McCatholic has this to say, mm-hmm. making a doomsday bunker for the inevitable rise of the priest DM. Yeah. So this is talking about our, our Lonergan story again. People were really freaked out about this organized <laughs> movement of priests. It was like the rise of the priest DM. Like, wow. Okay. We know they're priests on Twitter, but they are far more organized than we thought they were. What do we do? Do we hide? What happens? So that was part of the fun of it too. So it was, it was kind of like, oh yeah, we suddenly we can take over Catholic Twitter. This is kind of cool. <laughs> it's, now, it's a very silly charism to have, but here's the, here's the question O'Reilly. Why would you be afraid of priests? Right. Shame. Is this the, is not our rise a good thing? Isn't isn't it great? Is Have we not, not brought part joy to Twitter and the podcast land? Yes. Is this not part of the new clericalism? There you go. Right. I mean, here at clerically like, speaking, we strive to give clericalism a good name. Exactly. Oh, so I saw this and I thought of our quick back and forth we had over Ratzinger a few podcasts ago. An historical uh-huh. critical method. Okay. This is from Josh Madden at Dr. Josh Madden. Historical criticism. Here's a 450 word monograph arguing that this one Greek phrase means precisely this and nothing more based on context. Blah, 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 blah. St. Augustine, if your interpretation of a scripture passage makes sense and doesn't contradict the faith, it's true. Mm-hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Again, it's there are places for these things, right? There's there's places for the historical critical method, but the average Catholic doesn't care, right? Because right. there's not a lot of fruit that comes from it. No, there's fruit, but it's it's gotta be a place of proper context. Historical critical method is just a way for scholars to feel fancy. Hold about on a second. The literal interpretation on the last, of scripture on the last podcast. Yes. You were going into the 
exile of Israel in Mesopotamia. And you were talking about the two different creation accounts in there. That is all the fruit of historical critical method. Right, right, right. But it's just a fancy way of getting at the literal meaning of scripture. So yeah, it's helpful you, here and there. So that's what I've been saying. It's helpful. I'm not saying it's the be all end all. I'm just saying it's it's. But it's a it's an important it's an important tool. It's not absolutely essential to all things, but it's an important tool because it helps us to understand the full context of the story. Okay, fine. Enough. Now, again, I'm not a. I'm not. I'm not. Big, I'm not. I'm not saying this because I'm big on historical critical. I'm not actually. That's why, like, I argued on the last podcast. I quickly said that I actually don't think it's too. Meant, it's meant to be two different creation accounts. I actually do think it's meant to be one account. Well, the thing is, the thing is, it functions as one account. Yeah, it functions as one the, story, like two yeah. perspectives of one story. You have like, the more cosmic view, there. and then you have the more anthropological view, right? And right. that's the whole point. Is it's meant to? It's kind of like looking. It's almost phenomenological. It's looking at it from two different perspectives, right? One reality, mm-hmm. and that's really cool, and that's really important. And a lot of historical, you see the uh, the historical critical people will talk about the four different. There's like the priestly text, the Yahweh's text, the right. I, I forget the four. I, I forget the Deuterocanonical text and mm-hmm. whatever. There's four different writers of Genesis essentially. I think that's all bunk. I think I so too. I think it's all bunk too. But um, so there's there's places to criticize this stuff too, right? But I yeah, do think and that also it, it I could have, I could have totally made my point without using the historical critical method. Yeah, like I could have just said, yeah, that there are these other creation myths and look how different they are. Yeah. I, you know, but instead I slipped into what I hate, which is exactly. this overly scarly attempt and to be throwing like, oh, it back into this your face. must have been written as a response, but no, it didn't. It didn't have to be written as a response. It can be just a response, but it wasn't written as such. Right. Know? Exactly. I, no, and I think you have to take this. But again, that stuff actually helps because that helps you see even more the power of the text, right? Yes. I agree. Of what it's trying to, like, the fact that you understand the... For example, the moon and how it's understood in, in Mesopotamian myth and how it's understood in, in the in the context of the Jewish scriptures is vastly different, right? The sun, how they're seen. Essentially it's de deifying the the celestial uh, beings. Right. And just seeing them as just pure creation. That's really cool and that's really important. Yes. But it's not the be all end all. Yeah. I'm, basically, I'm just trying to get you to yell about stuff. I'm just trying to create controversy for content. That's all. I, I will yell here. about this stuff. You know that. I'm yelling right now. And I just and I totally just owned you by making you by showing you how you use the historical critical method, even though you thought, even though you think it's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Mm. Yeah. All right. At Bishop Umbers. Uh, from a couple weeks ago now, but I met a woman today who wants to be a saint. She goes around the city with her stroller, giving food to the homeless and praying with anyone who comes her way. I, that tweet, yeah, what is, yeah. That tweet just, I don't know. It just kind of struck me a lot It because this is a person who's taking holiness seriously. And it just, it was really cool. Like it's just, it, it really, he, it, it kind of struck to me of what am I doing to become a saint? Yeah, is is being a saint my first desire? Mm-hmm. And I and that's this for this person he's talking about. Absolutely, it is. This is her first desire. She goes around. She wants. She's trying to help the homeless. She's trying to find any way to help them. This is her mission. She feels, I guess, to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other things that can be done that she's not doing, and that's okay. Right. Like that. That's part of it all. But um, I was just really struck about that, that that we we always lose focus of that 
do I desire, am I building up my desire to be a saint? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something else going on here too. So not everyone is called to walk around with a stroller full of food and give it to the poor. Right. But you're called to do something or you should do something. So just do it. Yeah. Like this, this woman, she's not a part of some big program right. or like some club. She's like, this is what I need to do. And I'm just going to go do it. So I think yeah. that's what that desire for holiness and that desire to love your neighbor, it should just make you do stuff. Yeah. Like whatever it is. I don't know yeah, what it is exactly. for each person, but she's yeah. just going out and doing it. Exactly. And you I don't think, need all these programs. Just do it. Yeah. I really think that's more and more what needs to happen in parishes is that we should have inspired people so much or they should be so inflamed with love because of the gospel yeah. that you don't need to have a meeting for stuff all the time. Yeah. You can just go and do it. Do it. Yeah. You know? I have <laughs> this is great. Uh so this is from uh quite interesting at Wikipedia. Okay. There are over one million dogs in the USA who are the primary beneficiary in a will. Isn't that amazing? Let's this get This is mean. the beginning of Let's the end be of the world. Mean. Let's be This is mean. the beginning. <laughs> Of the end of the world. <laughs> uh, I will never stop complaining about this stuff. Okay, so let's do let's do the regular. Dogs are not people. Dogs aren't people. They're not even legal persons. How can they be a beneficiary? Because well, we decide who legal persons are, Father Harrison. Don't we? We decide whether a baby in the womb is a legal person. So if I think that a baby in a womb can't be a person, then why the hell can't I make my like dog a person? This is where we are as a culture. Quick aside, can I just say how screwed up America is right now? <laughs> um, I would be more comfortable if you talked more about Western culture and maybe Americans as a as an exemplar of well, that. Just what was happening with your infanticide debate last week? Oh, f. You're right. I mean, it's 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 really is. I a was I was angry. I I was like, oh my god! Like, but the, the, like all of this together. Yeah, it's the beginning of the end of the world. It's the only, uh, it's the only rational explanation I have to all this. Well, I've I've got a different option. It okay. can be just, um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be the end of the world. It can just be a purification that's going to happen soon. Yes, right? like we that's can all right. just yeah. like go like a Sodom and Gomorrah route. Like it's not yeah. the whole world that's destroyed. But so we're when are just... we starting our monastery? Yeah. So I keep thinking. Well, the thing is, I don't want to start <laughs> a monastery. Here's the thing about the the Benedict option. Like we shouldn't do no, it. No, no, no. I'm just talking about Benedict. I'm just like let's start a start a monastery. Man, we're going on so many tangents, but part of me is feeling like, what if what if we just had little monasteries? Like, what if we had like communities of priests, and then you have a kind of parish culture around it, yeah. and we're obedient to a bishop, but it's it's not quite a parish. This is a very yeah early hmm. on me thinking about this sort of thing. Interesting. But isn't that kind of how it worked before? Because then the monasteries can become beneficiaries of these wills and not dogs. Exactly. In fact, we could put in our rule, no dogs, to ensure mm-hmm. that no dog is ever in the future left anything in their will. Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's okay if you have a pet and if you have a affection for that pet that is ordered and normal, yeah. like it's okay to be sad yeah. if your pet dies or yeah. to want to care for your pet. That is normal and fine. If you start treating your pet like you would a human person, then you're dis that's a disordered affection. 
Yeah. Period. Absolutely. Full and stop. Like it's it's just. Uh, uh, ah. 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 Yeah. Ah. I got. I just rage. Rage. And is... why? Why is there rage? Because we as Catholic priests think that people should love people. <laughs> Exactly. Right? Like, Christ became a human being. That's how much he, like, loved humanity. Imagine so, if your mom dies and she's and you're like, oh, I left everything to Poochie. Yeah, it's ridiculous. You would feel like you weren't cared for or loved. I mean, it's not about money in the end, obviously. No, but no, like, no, no. But a million dogs. A million dogs. Yeah. <laughs> like. Primary a million beneficiary dogs. in a will. A million dogs. That... That's one of every 30 people in the U.S. who have a will. Hmm. Or sorry, like what, 300 million people? So one out of every 30 persons left. Now, not every person's left a will. It's probably like one out of every 15 people has left their dog as a prior. That's like that's 8% of Americans have left, who have written a will, have left mm-hmm. their dog as a primary beneficiary. Okay, that so is what, so screwed up. Like, why does this happen? Why does this happen? Why did uh, this happen? Okay, okay, okay. So wait, okay. we're going we're gonna to uh, get into this a little sorry. bit more. Sorry, I, I don't get ragey too often, but this is just yeah. like well, stupid. The thing is, but let's taking a step back from the rage. Take a step back from the rage. Keep it there. Keep it in the box because it's going to be useful later, I'm sure. Okay. But, but okay. I think when you have like the, these disordered attachments to pets come from a woundedness somewhere. Where either a person or a loved one has betrayed you or harmed you, and then you then search for fulfillment or completion in something that is safer. And because dogs are literally bred to have human characteristics and mimic human affection, and maybe to some extent they actually have some kind of affection on their own, yeah, they literally cannot not love you unless you like utterly like abuse them. Like so it's this kind of safe thing to do but it is not the human thing to do it's it's this refusal to go on um this adventure of human life yeah for the safety and people do that because they're wounded so i get that but it's It's important to understand that there's a wound there that christ wants to heal there's so many institutions that exist that could help feed the if imagine if those million dogs instead of them being primary beneficiaries of estates but it was like groups that helped the poor and the and and the abused and refugees. Think how much good we could do. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Um, all human life in Western culture is valued on whether or not they make me feel good. I know. That's all it is. I know. I know. So I like, know. if this if this um, child doesn't make me feel good, then I can get rid of the child. Or uh, sometimes the poor do make you feel good because if I help out the poor, I feel good. That's why I care about them. I know. It's all this real – it's this lack of understanding oh. the beauty and dignity of each human person. Not because of what I they know. do, but simply because of wh- who they are. I know. Well, anyway, that was a long – where are we? Where we got to go into presbyteral exhortations. No, we're not. Yeah? We're going to go into... Oh, sorry. I mean, Patreon, Patreon pontifications. pontifications. Too many P words. P- too many P words. Patreon pontifications. You support us. We read your tweets. So please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying our, for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the missionaries or charity. If you are part of our $5 pastoral council tier 
or $10 Church Lady tier, you have a chance at having your chosen tweet talked about on the podcast. Father Anthony, who does this week's tweet come from? It was chosen by at Better You Bet. And this person, who I can't tell what kind of person this person is because the profile picture is an egg. So he uh-huh. or she uh, has a tweet that says this. I would actually like to try a Trinitine Mass. Never been to one. But in Atlanta, the closest one is a half an hour away. The second closest is an hour away. And those might, on- and those might be the only two parishes in the whole state that offer it. How does one go about changing that? It's a good hmm. question. That's like, a good question. Because I've had like one or two parishioners ask me about um, doing the 1962 Mass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's interesting, but like I'm not going to do – the parish isn't going to have a whole new ma- a whole Mass yeah. for like two people. Right. Um, I think there needs to be like – like with anything, you want to get anything started in a parish, you need to show that there's a desire for it. Yeah. And also that you will support it. Yeah. So, and, and um, this is a little tough. Yeah. Because I can imagine, let's say you get 50 people. Because that's the smallest mass that we have is a, a mass on cal- on campus at the college I work at. It'll get 60 people. Okay. Right. So maybe if you got 60 people who desired this mass and said, hey, we'll set, we'll set up for it. We'll mm-hmm. organize it. We'll take care mm-hmm. of all that. The priest just has to show up and do his priest thing. Yeah. That's the best way to approach your pastor with that. Right. The problem is, is that the old right, the extraordinary form, is a very charged subject for a lot of priests. Mm-hmm. So even if you do all the right things, the answer still might be no. Right. Here's the thing. So there's a couple, I have a few things to say with that. Please. So first is Samarum Pontificum, when it came out in 2007, um, liberalized the ability for priests to say the extraordinary form. And it actually kind of put a little bit of a burden even on the priest to say that if a, if, if, if a stable, sustainable group comes forward, the mm-hmm. priest ought to offer this to people. Right. Ought to. Like it's, 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 uh, or, or should find a way to make it available at least. Yes. Um, now, okay, so maybe that priest can't do it, but it means bringing another priest. So then that means you're going to have to be willing to pay for that other priest to come. Okay. So there's going to be costs associated with this that sure. you need to be able to. Right, so are you willing to pay for those costs? Great. Maybe father wants to do it, but he needs to get training. Yeah. Um, that people don't realize this. A lot of priests do a lot of training for stuff out of their own pocket. And when it comes to stuff like that, we shouldn't like that's, you know, so maybe offer the best way first is always get to know your priests. Right. right? Yeah. Absolutely. I will say, I will say this, like, I can't, I'm not trying to universalize or anything, but I do find that I tend to find that younger guys tend to be more open to this. Mm-hmm. So try and get to know some of the younger priests in your diocese, maybe. Um, you also have to understand, though, that whether we like it or not, there are politics at play. Yep. And if a priest says no, it's not because they don't want to, per se, but maybe, I, I don't know, I've heard of cases where bishops would probably just remove you from a parish if you did it. Right. Right. You can't you can't ask a priest to sacrifice his whole quote unquote career as a priest for this either, right? So we get to know the young guys, I would say, get to or get to know get to know your priests, and and as you kind of hear about, you know, or go to parishes where you find that there's good liturgy, maybe I don't know. I'm just trying. I'm just kind of thinking out loud a bit. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, at the heart of it is, is that if your parish, if there's a stable group 
I would say 50 is your bare minimum number mm. that want this, the parish should try to make it available. Yeah. But, like but this said, also requires time on the priest's part to mm-hmm. sacrifice for this and everything too, right? So, right. But yeah. I think that the other, just, I mean, I got to emphasize this again, the priest, yeah. even though uh, the language in the document is should, the priest might not do it anyway. Right. And that might be for a good reason, might be for a bad reason. And then right. you're just kind of stuck, and I think you have to then just go to prayer and fasting. Yeah. Like, if you really want this, and if God wants this to happen, like, pray, fast, ask for it. Um, the worst thing you can do, like it or not, whether it's justified or not, the worst thing you can do is get militant about it uh, yeah. or protest. Exactly. Um, you can write respectful letters to a bishop. That might be helpful. Um, but the thing is, just practically speaking, uh-huh. we as priests experience very often people who are very fixated on one issue. It might be... Uh, the extraordinary form it might be a particular devotion to mary it might be a particular social issue and they come at us with such like anger and intensity that yeah. it's totally off-putting and it's very tempting just to dismiss that yeah and be like no i can't deal with this i have to deal with all the other people right now and you're just being ridiculous yeah um so you might be like i said you might be fully justified in your anger but yep. it's just practically speaking not the way to yep. go so yeah yeah so it takes time i mean the other thing is i mean maybe you don't have a car i don't know but uh half hour drive is not that far no it's really not in the grand scheme of people i know people in my diocese who will drive over an hour every sunday yeah to go to go to uh the parish that has a latin mass yeah i mean to be honest a half hour is nothing so so because you have to give it a shot first anyways right If if it's something you want more locally great then Go give it a shot. If it's something you're like, oh yeah, I would like to see this. Then get to know people there. They might know people around your area who can they put you in touch with. And then you can these things have to grow organically always. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, hey, thanks at Better You Bet and kudos to you for picking your own tweets. I think you're the first one to do that in a long time, and I like the chutzpah, and it was a good tweet. So thank you. And now it is time for. Presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's the best part. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Quite. Yes. Right. Father so, Harrison, before yes. you start, yes. I feel like we, we need to get our groove back. I know. I'm, I've been, well, I, think I, was, I was out of it. The, like, my, my, my first transition was good. Yeah, it was. But like, I think both of us, I think producer Nick really kind of sullied the whole podcast and just like took us out of our groove. There is a stain on the podcast now that I feel like we almost need a redeemer to come in to save it. I think so too. It's a, it's something we cannot do ourselves. No. Yeah. Foreshadowing. Mm. Foreshadowing. Hmm. Hmm. So I once had a conversation with a Protestant friend who was trying to kind of entrap me. Whoa, you time out. What kind of friend? Protestant. Are you allowed to have Protestant friends, Father Harrison? Yes. Okay. This was way back in the day, too. This was before I even went to Okay, so you're not friends with this person anymore, right? No, this, the, unfortunately, this person, well, first, this person eventually became Catholic, which is uh, kind of cool. Okay, good, good. No, good, no, no, good. no, no, it gets worse, though. Oh, what? <laughs> Then she became a lesbian or declared herself a lesbian. Okay. Or 
and then entered into a relationship and left the church. Uh, see, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's sad. Okay, um, so just so anybody who doesn't get jokes, it's okay to have Protestant friends. Absolutely. But I will never not make fun of my Protestant friends. So yeah. There you go. So this friend though asks me a pretty straightforward question. Mm-hmm. They're but they're trying to entrap me. I'm hoping you can answer it. Oh, let's see. Who, who is the head of the church? I would say the head of the church is Jesus Christ. Good. Yeah. That was my. That was my answer too. See, and, it's and, the truth. And she was put. She was. I, I caught her off guard with that mm-hmm. because I think she was expecting me to see say the Pope. So she said, "No, Jesus is the head." Yeah. Right. And I said, "No, no. Obviously, Jesus is dead, but Jesus does have a vicar, right?" Yes. And who's his vicar? That's the Pope. That's the Pope. The Pope is... That is Mr. Pope. That's right. And he's the principle of unity in the church. Mm-hmm. He, and then, so I want to kind of talk today about the papacy a bit. Uh, I've Partially because I've seen some stuff on Twitter. Uh, just And also the way the media treats the papacy today. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of just address uh, what what the papacy is and isn't. Yeah. Um, because it... I think we've made it to be things that actually isn't by its nature. And I think we've also overemphasized some of the things that it has. Yes. So I want to kind of try and dispel the myths, you know? Mm-hmm. So so the Pope, along with the bishops, exercises a magisterial role in interpreting and holding uh, faithfully to the deposit of faith, right? They, they, they are Ooh. the... Father Harrison, there's a lot of yeah. terminology right there. Yeah. What, let's talk about what, what's magisterium mean. So the magisterium you know? is the teaching authority of the church. Right. Do you know what the Latin word means? Like what it comes from? Uh, Magister. Doesn't that mean teacher? Yeah. Teacher or master. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. So uh, the magisterium is the teaching body of the church. The, uh, the, the leaders in the church have three roles to sanctify, to teach, and to govern. Right. And when a bishop or pope who are the members of the magisterium uh, have an ability when they, when they are holding up the, the faith, they're exercising their teaching function, right? Uh, the Pope also has governing functions. He also has sanctifying functions, mm-hmm. but the teaching function in the context of the bishops and the popes is exercised through the magisterium, which is their way of, of saying like, this is true. Yeah. This is true. And this is, this is what leads us to Jesus and to getting to know him more. Yes. So, the, the te- the, and the deposit of faith is um, not just statements. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people will disagree with on this one, but uh, it's not just propositions. But it's the deposit of faith is, is actually, to put it in the simplest form, it's Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, yeah. Right? Everything is revealed to and, Jesus. And yeah. everything that comes with him, right? Mm-hmm. That includes statements of truth, obviously. Yeah. and But it also involves a way of life and a, a way of being and a way of worshiping and so on and so forth. So it's the role of the magisterium to kind of hold that deposit of faith or to hold faithfully to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to proclaim truthfully who Jesus is, and to live the beauty of faith as Jesus. You know, true, good, and beautiful. That's kind of yes. the role of the magisterium. So the, the magisterium is then there to teach us how to be saints yeah, and to hold to who Jesus really is. Yeah, And, and this is why... That. You need that, right? This is why doctrine and dogma is part of the magisterium, right? This is we don't we don't just stop with doctrines and dogmas, but they're essential. Yeah, that they're part of it. Now, okay, that's just the magisterium. Uh, now, the Pope though ha- holds a special place in the magisterium, and that's kind of what I, as I said. I want to talk about this. What is the role, the nature, 
and the purpose of the Pope's teaching office. Yes. Okay. So I want to do a bit of history. Are we good with the magisterium and the positive faith stuff? I think that was good. I think that was very well okay. explained. Okay. Excellent. So let's go back to Vatican One. What? Yes. There was a Vatican One. There's got to be a Vatican Two. There's got to be a Vatican One, right? Well, you know what? I never thought of it that way. I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm a smart guy sometimes. Uh, uh, it's one, <laughs> one of the ones where the sequel gets more press than the, the original. But okay, exactly. How how familiar are you with the history of Vatican One? Uh, I know it was a spotty one because there's lots of wars and stuff that went on that made it yeah. hard for it to happen. Right. Um, and then I know a little bit about the gist of the teaching of it. Right. Um, the emphasis of it, but uh, that's about it. Right. So there were kind of um, two things it was trying to address. One was the reasonableness of faith. Mm-hmm. Which so it actually um, anathematized fideism, which is this idea that I believe that I just believe it doesn't need to be rationally provable, right? Right, and so it it upholds that we can, for example, Vatican One upholds the idea that we can actually know that God exists by our by reason alone. Mm-hmm. We can't know who God is by reason alone, right? But we can know that God is by reason alone. Yes. If you say I just believe that God is, I don't need to. I don't need to reason to it. That's fideism. That's actually a heresy in the church. So that's one of the things it's trying to deal with, mm-hmm. uh, because modernism is coming up at the time, and people are becoming more and more suspicious of reason. And so the church is trying to kind of balance itself out with that. Yes. But the second thing that came out, and this is the big one that came out from that council, was uh, the statement of uh, the, do- the dogma of the of papal infallibility. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, for those who don't know, though, actually, that at the time, this was actually a very hotly contested dogma. And there were kind of three camps at Vatican I. There were those who were just in favor of infallibility. There were those who were opposed to the, the doctrine. Uh, but then there was a third party that was very interesting. And actually, blessed John Henry Newman was a part of this camp at the council. And they were known as the inopportunists. Excellent band name. Yeah, let's <laughs> start a band. What do you call it? The inopportunists. Uh, they were arguing this, that while they believe in the doctrine and dogma of papal infallibility, because of what was going on in the church at the time, especially with uh, Catholicism starting to make inroads into England again, mm-hmm. they felt it an inopportune time to declare the dogma. Mm-hmm. Right. So these were the arguments that were going on at the council. But... Uh, the party that went out was those in favor, obviously. There was declared the doc- the dogma of papal infallibility, which states simply that when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra on matters of faith and morals, and he makes a statement declaring that he's making an infallible statement, uh, that it's de-, de facto infallible. Yeah. Okay, yeah, now, there's a lot of conditions. There's a lot of conditions there, right? It does not mean that the Pope every word that the Pope says is infallible. Okay. Yeah. Does not mean that. It mean, and you know, there's a lot of arguments. How many times the popes use this? Some say three, some say two. Uh, dogma of the immaculate conception. Yep. Right. Uh, dogma of the assumption. Yes. Are the only two that some people are making will make the claim that the filioque is also an act of papal infallibility. Oh, oh. But that's a, that's a that's a hist- I think that one's historically dubious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are the only two that I can think of. Well, has... I feel like some are trying to say um, uh, that John Paul II did so on women's ordination. I'm gonna hold that one. Okay. I'm gonna. I want. I'm, I'm using it as an example a bit later. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, because uh, my quick answer right now is no, it's not. 
Bum, bum, bum. Okay. So anyways, uh, so that's when the dogma, that's what the dogma is. So that, those are the conditions that the Pope has to fulfill for it to be an infallible statement. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this was not going to be the only thing uh, at the council. They were going to, f- they're going to kind of flesh out a whole theology of the church at Vatican I. Because they recognize that "quote unquote" uh, too much too much emphasis is giving to the papacy, and therefore uh, it could be too much weighted on the papacy. Sure. And yeah. local bishops, local churches can lose their authority. Unfortunately, the Franco-Prussian War broke out. Those Franco and Prussians always yeah, I know. at war with somebody. Yeah. Uh, defenestrating Europe and stuff like that. <laughs> All of Europe. <laughs> Out the window! <laughs> Bye, Europe! And it uh, never got better. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, the the war broke out, which created a, a time of political instability in Italy. It's actually, a, this is around the period where we lost the Papal States. Wait, in wait. Italy, which was actually a good thing in the long run, I think, but uh, <gasps> Intergalus will not be All the treads. In the All world, the integralists right now. The disturbance in the force when yes, you said exactly. that. <laughs> <laughs> What's that chill down my spine? Someone, did someone speak I, against the papal states? Ridiculous. Um, anyways, so because of that, though, uh, the with the nature and purpose of the bishop, for example, was not talked about. And what happens after the council very quickly is that bishops. In, in the law, because uh, the law, canon law becomes codified for the first time in 1917 mm-hmm. and following on Vatican I theology for a while, which is not bad. It just wasn't complete, essentially. Yeah. Bishops became to be seen more as branch managers of the Pope mm-hmm. rather than people who had an order unto themselves yeah. or uh, had an authority unto themselves in their local diocese. I know it's a lot of history. Just, just trust me on this, folks. This is important. Um, so... What happens uh, after the after this breaks out is that the papacy really kind of centralizes a lot, and uh, papal encyclicals start gaining more prominence uh, as important documents in the church. It's very interesting. We we give all this weight to papal encyclicals nowadays, and and there's a there is a, a certain obedience and, and weight that we should be giving to encyclicals. Sure, yeah. But they weren't the they are, they weren't a big as big of a deal 125 years ago as they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the papacy kind of centralizes itself, or, and it's not like a it's not a power play or anything. It's just that because of of the lack of theology of the rest of the church, a, a large emphasis is placed on papal governance and authority, to the neglect of the local church and the local bishops. This is part of the reason why John the twenty third calls the Second Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. In fact, before he calls the council, the first thing he does is he officially closes the First Vatican Council. Uh-huh. It was never. It was never officially closed. It's still on the books. Yeah. So he he closed it in 1959 or whatever it was when he called the council. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in Vatican II that the, if you will, the the remaining bits of of ecclesial theology or ecclesiology were kind of fleshed out in concert with what was going on with Vatican One. Uh, Vatican II does not deny anything that it says about the Church in Vatican One. It mm-hmm. just adds to stuff. Yeah. So for. This is a very interesting thing because we're so used to this nowadays, but people do not realize this. For the for, it was not until Lumen Gentium that for the first time, it it kind of becomes official teaching of the church that the bishop is an order unto himself. Yeah, that was huge. That was huge. Uh, there's a whole bunch of theological reasons why that was a debate. Uh, people saw the episcopal office as more a juridical 
office rather than an office by nature of ordination. Mm-hmm. Not to say bishops were always ordained, obviously, but it was a it was a theological debate that was going on for about eight hundred years. Actually, yeah. So this was huge, and because the bishop has is an order unto himself, and the pope is kind of the first among bishops, that means a bishop himself has a certain authority, and and right of governance in his local church. And this actually really develops in 1983 with the new code of canon law, where bishops really take on a lot of, a lot more authority locally than they did before. Very interestingly, I'd say it kind of went the other direction too much, <laughs> where yeah. bishops now see themselves almost like as many popes sometimes. Yeah. And that's not the case either. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of the hate. And so now, but then uh, John Paul II comes along. Right. And changes the papacy in its kind of public perception. Right. Yeah. He becomes the rock star pope. He does. Right. He, he's going around all over the world. I mean, Paul VI traveled a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit. But John Paul II traveled extensively. He made the pope a, a universal public figure. This is this is like a first in the history of the papacy. He became a superstar. He made the pope a superstar. Right. But this also then changes the how we see the Pope today. So a lot of ways we see the Pope today is um, we look at him through the lens of power. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Pope can do what he wants. He's got all the power. And it's true, actually, if you read canon law, he's got universal jurisdiction. <laughs> he kind of does. Yeah. He can kind of, he can say to a bishop, you're gone, and he's gone. The bishop yeah. can do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um we're, they're talking about the cardinal care case this week, and if the pope is is the judge on the case, there is no court of appeal. The pope is the highest appeal, <laughs> and if he if he's late, if McCarrick's laicized by the pope making that judgment, it's done. It's it, mm-hmm. right? So the pope does have a lot of legal authority, but the way the church sees office is always in service to something, right? right. What's one of the what's the main title of the of the pope, right? Uh, servants of the servants of Right, servant, servant of the servant servant of Christ. Yeah. yeah, God or God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a servant. Mm-hmm. He's not someone who has power to just do what he wants. He can't change church teaching because he feels like it. Impossible. It's impossible. It's actually impossible. And this is actually, so this is where the John Paul II thing comes in. Okay. About ordaining women. Yes. Right. So uh, back in the 80s, there was a large discussion going on around fe- women's ordination. And... Um, the so John Paul II instituted a commission to look into the question, just like Francis has done nowadays for fem- for women deacons. Just you know, we we freak out that they're even investigating it. It's 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 the fact. It's not about that opening the door. It's about we got to look into all the documents. We got to look into all the history, and there are experts in these fields who could do all this. Sure. So that's what he did with with women's ordination to the priesthood. And in the document he he wrote on this, which is a really, it's a very interesting document in so many ways around this idea of magisterium and papal authority. Yeah. He actually says this. Uh, he says that I have no power to change this teaching. That That's his, that's his I mean, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. But he says, right. Um, we have, based on what we have, there's nothing that says that I can do anything different. So it's a very interesting... Now, people are saying, oh, well, that was an infallible statement because he quotes... Uh, he says, therefore, in order to confirm... As my role to confirm the brethren, he, quote, brethren, he quotes Luke 15 mm-hmm. in this, uh, for, for, which is a statement about papal authority. 
I declare that is this is not a this is not a teaching in which the Pope has any authority to change. Very interesting, right? It's not about power there, right? But right. it also was not an infallible statement. Okay, yeah, because people were people were asking this question afterwards, and they said, "Hey, uh, John Paul II," uh, or they're asking Cardinal Ratzinger. Well, did he he quotes Luke fifteen there. This must have been an ex cathedral statement, and and Benedict said, "No, it's not." He's just reconfirming what has been part of the ordinary magisterium. Right. So he's not. So that's. A, I don't know if we touched on this quite enough, but the um, the infallible statements. Um, the difference between that and ordinary teaching, I think, is important. I'm not sure if we touched on quite enough. Yeah, I'm. I was. I'm gonna. I was gonna kind of leave that one a little bit, but go ahead if you want. Okay. Just um, what the Pope is doing is nothing well maybe we're not maybe we'll just cut all that out i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, I well i was i or sorry actually i was going to go into it in a little bit here i guess but um yeah ordinary magisterium is is there's, there's there's different levels to magisterium right there are times where the where the magisterium the teaching office of the church expresses things in an extraordinary way right where there comes a moment where there is too much confusion going on that a pope needs to say pope or a council need to say something definitive right for example, nice um, um, the the dogma of the assumption is yes. an action of the extraordinary magisterium because right. it's an infallible statement. Mm -hmm. It's outside of his or it's outside of the ordinary process of teaching. That's what extraordinary means. It doesn't mean greater. It just means out of the ordinary. Um, but what the Pope was doing, what John Paul II was doing with regards to ordaining women, is he was saying, no, based on what we've been teaching forever we can't change we can't change this it's, this is the ordinary magisterium and i am he's just as much subject to it as everyone else yeah okay but the problem with that and maybe we're getting too much in the weeds with this yeah. but how is that different than um declare uh, than the uh, the assumption of mary because i had been a tradition in the church for a long time right i've been held they had been fairly ordinary maybe not quite as explicit as um, the priesthood, like if you look at the history of the church and the priesthood, it's really, really obvious. Um, because, whereas, yeah, what's the, the difference between those two things? There were official declarations from the church about the ordination of men only. Oh, in the past. In the past, there have never there had never been official magisterial declarations or teachings in regards to the assumption. Yeah, there had been teach. I it, mean, there had been like, it, uh, so, I mean, there had been liturgical celebration, absolutely, and a history but, of that understanding, but never right. a statement from a council. Exactly, or or the group of the bishops or whatever, right? So okay. this is why it, it was different. And very interestingly, uh, the popes, when they did Immaculate Conception and Assumption, I think it was just uh, definitely the Assumption. I'm not sure about the Immaculate Conception. The Pope, Pope Pius XII, for sure, with the Assumption, he surveyed all the bishops of the world. Since yeah, the agreement it's first, interesting. Which is, right? So this is the thing. We, we look at, you see, my beef is we look at the, so with all this is I've been really concerned lately with a lot of, what I would call like a new ultramontanism. Do you know what ultramontanism is? It means that the Pope should live on a mountain. <laughs> on an ultra mountain. <laughs> sorry, sorry. The Pope should the live mountain. on the biggest mountain. <laughs> Kick off the Dalai Lama, wherever the heck he lives. Kick out Zeus. I don't care. Find the biggest mountain. Put the Pope on top, and that's where he does his teaching. That's ultramontanism. <laughs> Where's the lie, Father Harrison? Where's the lie? That's what it should be. 
Okay. But in real, life, is, in real life, in real life, yes, uh, this is a controversy between mostly between uh, what France and uh, or the continent. The idea You're is basically about that Galicanism or conciliarism. Yeah. So yeah. basically, on the continent of Europe, at one point in time, this is how well I know my history. Um, yeah. They were focusing more on, hey, it should be um, the bishops who really kind of run the church, or it should be the king, or blah blah blah. blah. But other people were like, no, we should look over the mountains, over the Alps, to Rome. And the Pope should be the king of all the things. Right. And that's my super good interpretation yeah. of theology. Essentially, ultramontanism says that all power, yes. all authority, all teaching authority, and pretty much it, it, it kind of, while they may not say this directly, it comes out in the way they present their view of the papacy. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every word that the Pope says is the word of God. Right. That's a heresy in the church. Yep. Now, um, there's a lot of th- distinguished distinctions to make with all this, right? So there's different ways the Pope can exercise his ordinary magisterium, right? Um, they come through official documents. Mm-hmm. It always has to be something official, okay? When the Pope's speaking off the cuff, like when he's doing his airplane interviews, they're not magisterial actions. Mm-hmm. They're not. Uh, because a magisterial action is always something official, right? It, it's something... we. Um, so it's like a, an apostolic exhortation, could be a letter, absolutely. It could be um, um, an encyclical. It could be a dogmatic statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are the ordinary ways the Pope exercises his magisterium. Yes. Okay. When the Pope, even like I would say, his catechesis have a certain level of magisterium, but I would like there's a bit of a hierarchy with it all. And we'll, yeah. I will do like a more generic podcast on magisterium one day. Mm-hmm. But um, they're kind of at the lower level of it all. But they still imagine he's teaching he's exercising his function of teaching if if it's um for example the pope will often issue documents that make canonical changes in the church around the law the laws on marriage or uh, juridical processes or whatever that's an exercise of his of his function of governance it's not a magisterial action right right um when the pope's when a pope is doing an interview that is not a magisterial action it is not. The Pope writes a book. Like, notice this with uh, Ratzinger's um, Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. He says, This is an expression of my own personal theological explorations. This is not magisterial. He actually makes it very clear right. to know that this is not magisterial. I think no, it's no so important to, to emphasize that it's not sometimes the Pope is speaking and sometimes yeah. Bergoglio is speaking. Yeah. Or sometimes right. it's Ratzinger yeah. and sometimes Benedict. No, no, no. He's still the Pope. Yeah. But. Yeah. He doesn't. He's not exercising that charism, exactly. Of infallibility, exactly. So this gets into some very interesting things because I've seen a lot, especially on Twitter lately, a lot of ultramontanism. Mm-hmm. Of essentially that the Pope is always above correction, which is silly. Which is silly. There's actually been cases in the church where popes have been corrected. Mm-hmm. For there was a, I'm forgetting which pope it was right now, but there was a pope in the early church who fell into kind of a semi-Arianism and he was corrected, mm-hmm. right? He was corrected and that's the role and that's the role of bishops. The bishops are there to do that. Yeah. Um, you see, we, we, we live in a world where, uh, president, where presidents and prime ministers and political figures and superstars, every word they speak, people hang on to as an expression of policy. Yeah. Right. And an expression of, of 
and we 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 kind of have transposed that nature of um that uh we've exposed that whole idea onto the papacy and it's contrary to the nature and purpose of the papacy well yeah yeah and you can see that because a lot of that um celebrity is de facto idol worship and then yeah. that's transferred onto any public figure and then especially when it's transferred on the pope you can make the pope an idol exactly so i'll give you an example of this it's something i hear sometimes because I, I mean i don't preach super long but i, I preach my, my goal range is like 12 to 15 minutes i like it is kind of my range for yeah, preaching sure. i've had parishioners say to me you know father the pope says you should only preach for 10 minutes I'm like, okay, that's not <laughs> a magist. He, he, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a world of pastoral advice. Yes. But I don't have to, I don't actually, actually I have, there's your requirement for me to obey that mm-hmm. as, as a priest or as a Catholic, because it's just his own personal opinion and style and everything. And I'm okay yeah. with that. I mean, uh, he, I get what he's trying to get at and I agree with the principle. I'm like, okay, but I don't agree that 10 minutes, 10 minutes with my style is just not going to work. Yeah, I'm right. okay with that. Yeah. Right. He's not making any magisterial statement. He's not laying. If it, it would be different, if he said it's a law of the church that a priest can only preach for ten minutes, then I would have to be obedient to that. I may yeah, not like absolutely. it, but I'd have to be obedient. <laughs> right. right. But he's not going to do that because no. that's not the way popes do things. So I want to kind of, I want to end with this because I think this is really important. When we, when we, because there are all sorts of reactions against uh, the papacy. There are people who are overly critical of the Pope. Mm-hmm. And there are people who will always and everywhere take every word as if it was God speaking into them directly. Right. And I think both extremes are wrong. Yes. So I want to talk. Uh, if, you're, if you're looking for a great book on how to understand magisterium and the whole nature and purpose of the magisterium, the best book I've ever read. There's a couple out there that are really good, but this is the best one I've read. It's called Magisterium, Teacher and Guardian of the Faith by Avery Cardinal Dulles. An amazing summary of the nature, purpose of the magisterium and what we ought to do. And in the uh, seventh, seventh chapter, he has three ways that we are supposed to respond to teachings in the church. He's talking about the magisterium in general, but let's talk about the papacy here, mm-hmm. maybe more specifically. Is this all making sense? Yeah. Sorry, I'm monologuing a lot today. No, it is, but you know what? That's I think you're not monologuing. You are exhorting Prez bitterly. Yeah. Plus, I wasn't I wasn't around when I was sick, right? So I got to get it. You got to get in your stuff. You got to get it in. Yeah. So there are teachings where, in each and every case, is a firm faith, and that always requires absolute obedience and acceptance on the part of every Catholic. Okay. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Boom. That is a firm faith. It is divine and direct from revelation. Okay? That's your first one that you, you have to give. You have to believe that. You have to believe that even to be a, a good Catholic. Catholic yep. Right? Okay. The second are doctrines pertaining to faith and morals that are proposed by the church definitively. Mm-hmm. So these are not teachings that are in the scriptures themselves, per se, or in the revelation that's been handed on through tradition. But they are extrapolated as uh, the logical logic of that. So, for yeah. example, contraception. Mm-hmm. There's nothing definitive in Revelation about contraception. I mean, there's a couple little things in Scripture, but there's, you know, modern contraception or IVF or all that stuff. Sure. Bio, stuff around bioethics today, you're not going to find that in Scripture. Jesus didn't talk about it in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He says, he didn't say when you IVF, you know, right. or anything like that. So what does the church do in, in pertaining to new uh, moral issues? She will say things definitively that are uh, the fruit of revelation itself. Mm-hmm. And those also require a firm obedience. Yes. You cannot disagree with those. We can struggle. You can have, people struggle with teachings of the church all the time. That's different. Right. But is it, am I struggling with it to come to obey it and to be submissive to it? Okay. That's, that's right. That's, so that's you can see how they're both very important to hold. Yeah. But you also just on a human level can tell Jesus Christ being true God and true man is yeah. still at a different level than yeah. something like contraception. They're both important. You have to hold them, but yeah, you, that's why, I mean, the distinction that needs to be made there, I think is kind of obvious. Yeah. Um, so the third way, this is, this is where it gets really interesting. It's regards to teachings that are authoritative, but not set forth as definitive. This is, uh, and so actually humanity, gener- uh, humanity generous actually talks about this. It says this. Mm-hmm. Nor must it be thought that what is expounded in encyclical letters does not itself demand assent, since the popes do not exercise in such letters the full power of the magisterium. For these matters are taught with the ordinary magisterium, of which it is true to say, he who hears you hears me. And generally what is expounded and inculcated in encyclical letters already, for other reasons, pertains to Catholic doctrine. But if the Supreme Pontiffs in their official documents purposely pass judgment on a matter up to that time, under dispute, it is obvious that the matter, according to the mind and will of these pontiffs, cannot any longer be considered in question, open to free discussion among theologians. So, and it goes on. Uh, and then Vatican II says, says something similar here in Lumen Gentium. Religious submission of will and intellect is to be given in a special way to authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra, in such a way that, that is, that his supreme magisterium is respectfully acknowledged, and the judgment expressed by him is sincerely adhered to in accordance with the, his manifest mind and will, which is communicated chiefly by the nature of the documents, by the frequent repetition of the same doctrine, or by the style of verbal expression. So there's so, a lot There's a lot going on there. Uh, uh, essentially what it's saying is this. If the Pope says something in an encyclical, mm-hmm. that requires a religious submission of intellect and will. What does this mean? It does not mean that we have to agree with it in the end, actually. It means I'm giving the Pope the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. That's the point of it. I'm going to, and it, it might challenge, it's very interesting because like in American circles, like social encyclicals really rub a lot of Americans the wrong way. Yes. But they actually require religious submission of intellect and will. Yeah. It's an act of humility. Mm-hmm. And so it says to the Pope, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Now, you could wrestle with it because it's not definitive doctrine. In the end, after you've willingly submitted to it, after you've, you've kind of said, okay, I'm going to give my, my whole will to it and my whole intellect to it, I still don't agree. You're actually okay. Yeah. But you shouldn't be disagreeing in a public way that causes confusion right. in people. Yeah. And that leads people astray to doubt the Pope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is it, something I think, you know, parish priests that we deal with a lot. Well, not yeah. a lot, but sometimes, definitely. There may be things where we have our, um, through our research or through our reading, like, I don't know if I completely agree with this or I have some qualms with it, but we're not yeah. going to get up on the pulpit and teach that because that's not, one, it's not helpful to um, the people of God. 
but also right. out of respect to what the Pope is saying right now. Right. Does that make sense? Did I say that right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, and this is a big problem because what I find a lot what's happening is you have people who do not exercise publicly that religious submission of will and intellect. Yes. It happens a lot on Twitter. It happens a lot on Twitter. People are criticizing the Pope. If you have if you have concerns or frustrations with something the Pope has taught through a document, you can do that, but it should be done in private. Mm-hmm. Or if it's going to be done publicly, it should be done out of respect and with charity and with um, respect for the office. But yeah. you you're not requ- you know okay. Let's say the Pope says something about I don't know uh, global warming. You might not have. You might not agree with it in the end, but you, my always, my thing is if this is challenging me, what in me is resisting this? Why and why is it resisting it? Right. But you have the other thing though, too, is to say, then you have the other people who are essentially saying, no, everything that the Pope says is, is beyond criticism. And that's not what this is saying. This is saying, no, no, criticism can be had, but it has to be done in a respectful, quiet and out of, and in a way out of obedience. Right. When we receive church documents, we shouldn't freak out. <laughs> because here's the other thing. It says it. It gains kind of quote-unquote magisterial authority the more it's repeated. Mm-hmm. Right? So the more the papacies... You'll actually notice this, especially with social encyclicals. They love to pick up on themes that were written in the previous ones and repeat them again. So the fact that a lot of these themes have been taught for over 100 years, you can sit, you can take it as being pretty authoritative. Right. Right? It's not but when it comes, Yeah. But I think we need to stop our heavy um, public criticism of the Pope's magisterial role. Okay. Yeah. Governance is different. Governance is very different. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely, right? But uh, his magisterial role is that. And the Pope actually doesn't exercise it all the time. Okay. So let's like let, let's actually back off maybe about freaking out about what a Pope says on a press conference or something like that. It's not right. a magisterial statement. Yeah. It's funny. People who feel like the Pope doesn't need to speak up as often as he does yeah. are the same kind of people who speak up probably more often than they need to, right? Exactly. <laughs> now it's different. They're not the Pope. But uh, I think someone tweeted out something about their grandmother's idea of the Pope is basically it's good to know the Pope's name, have a picture of him, and yeah. pray for him, and that's about it. Yeah. And that's not trying to squash people's ideas, but it is a reminder that – there needs to be a, a proper respect for what the Pope is doing, but also, yeah. you know, not all of us are trained theologians either. Yeah. And what, uh, okay, back up yeah. everything I just said. What's the fruit of what we're doing Yeah. when we talk about the Pope? I think that's something that we don't consider often enough. Yeah. And we make ourselves way more important than we actually are when we think we're bringing truth, but we're actually just bringing confusion. And there's a yeah. wisdom in what the church is teaching here and that wisdom is to help bring about unity so that the church can be more and more properly reflecting the face of christ to the world amen the papacy is there at a surface oh yeah when the pope is drafting a document he's not doing this just by himself he has advisors he has people who combs every magisterial document to see is this in concert with what's been said and done before okay if a pope for some reason said jesus is not god then that would require a public rebuke, but that would require a public rebuke not on us, mm-hmm. but on the bishop's part. Yeah. 
That's their job. That's not ours. You see, we need to rediscover that we all have a proper role and responsibility in the life of the church. Because this is my other beef, is that a lot of people who aren't theologians and claim to be theologians don't follow basic, quote-unquote, protocol with regards to magisterial teaching. Yeah. They don't understand. Like, when you were when you were ordained and when I was ordained, we actually had to sign the profession of faith. Yeah. Right? Am I publicly do exercising what I've promised in that in signing that document. Yep. You see, if you're not and if you're not held responsible to that doc, what you signed, then you shouldn't actually be talking about the stuff publicly. Yeah. Because you're so. you're going to sow division. Yep. And you're going to have to answer for that at the judgment. And it just really enrages me when I see so much division being sowed on sowed on Twitter by bad theological formation because they weren't formed as theologians and they weren't formed with, in a way, I'm not saying that people can't talk about things theologically. Oh, you can talk about them, sure, yeah. But you haven't, you're not held responsible to a promise mm-hmm. like we are. Exactly. And so maybe it takes a, a bit more humility on, on the um, armchair theologians to really consider what we're saying, what they're saying and doing, mm-hmm. and the consequences it has on the public image of the papacy. And the public image of the magisterium and the public image of the church. Yep. So, okay. And rant. Good. Excellent rant. Cool. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I just got a text from Tommy. He did not follow the instructions from the meme. From the Lonergan diagram. Oh, so, shame. Unfortunately, we can't have him on. Uh, sorry, Tommy. Maybe next week we'll have you on. So, uh, Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me at Fr Harrison. You can find me at Father Sharapa. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. God bless. Peace.